A reading from Paul's letter to the Ephesian church, chapter 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace that you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So I don't know uh, how this all got started in my life, but I know this for sure, and this will tell you something about me a little bit, that uh, I, I'm not very good at diagnosing problems that I have or if something's a serious issue or not a serious issue. My whole life long, I've had this tendency to just underplay every problem that I have. I've tried to think about uh, with the help of a lot of money I spent on counseling to figure out where all that came from, but it started as long as I know. Uh, some of you who've been around a while, you know that I grew up on a pretty large cattle operation in Mississippi, and that's what I grew up doing on the back of horse, doing that whole thing with cows. And it, when I was just elementary age, just a, a young guy, I was in a corral with a whole bunch of other guys, uh, all adults, and I was the branding iron guy. Now, if you don't know anything about that, the branding iron guy is the guy that basically takes the iron out of the fire. It's red hot. You grab it. You take it over to somebody who brands the cow with it. It's my whole job. I'm just elementary age. I take the branding iron. I take it over to the guy. Now, at some point, because they were doing other things as well with the animals, uh, I got bored and I took the gloves off that I'd been given as an elementary kid might want to do and I grabbed the branding iron and I burned all the skin off the palm of my hands and I of course let out a cry like every elementary kid would and my dad came over as sympathetic as he could be which wasn't a whole lot anyway but he came over and he looked at it and he said man I can only imagine that hurts terribly uh, and we probably ought to do something about it but we ain't got time for all that. All these cows got to be taken care of, and everybody in here is getting paid, so we got to get that glove back on your hand, and you're going to have to grab another branding iron and get after it because you're the only guy we got. So that's what we did. We put that uh, glove back over that palm of that hand, and I never did go to the doctor over that. They never did anything else. He figured out when I got home, they put some salve on it, and I was good to go. Well, I just continued to think that kind of way my whole life long. In fact, I could tell you about broken bones. I've broken more bones than almost anybody I know, and I'm just terrible kinds of ways. I've had concussions, which again, tells you more than you need to know about me, uh, <laughs> that never, nobody ever dealt with. People have tried to say, hey, you need to do something about that, and I just haven't dealt with them. Later on, back on the ranch, I was with a group of guys, and now I'm in charge. I'm probably older high school age, and we're working on a corral. We've got to fix it because they're going to use it in a few days. And one particular log that we had to work on had to be shaved a little bit, and I took an axe, and I was shaving that uh, log down, and the, it, I hit it with a glancing blow, and it went right through the top of my shoe into my big toe. And I, uh, the guy next to me said, Whoa, man, 
I mean, blood's coming out of the shoe and all that kind of stuff. The axe is there because I didn't want to pull it out yet. And uh, he said, we got to go back to the house. And I said, you know we ain't got time for all of that. I said, they're going to want to know, did we get this done or not? We can take care of that when we get back. Help me get this axe out of my foot, and uh, we'll go take care of it. Now, that one we did eventually have to go get stitches in, and I don't have any feeling in that toe uh, to, these day, to this day. But my whole life long, no matter what happens, I'm just that guy that when something happens, I'm, you all remember, uh, I can't even remember the guy who did this now, who would get hurt in movies, and he'd bounce up and go, I'm okay, I'm okay. That's always been me. I've just been that guy. And doctors have told me, you know, hey, Ed, you know, you've got to tell us uh, the, the most important part in dealing with anything is diagnosis. If we can't get a diagnosis of what the problem is, we can't really help. And then eventually uh, counselors also told me that, that we've got <laughs> we to talk about problems and work them out. And it didn't really come clear to me until I've got these new people in my life now that really matter to me. Uh, i got nine of them. Uh, they're my grandchildren. And they sort of know intuitively when something's a big deal and not a big deal. And so they regularly, this is going to shock some of you, they see me and I'll just, we'll be doing things and I'll be bleeding. I'll just be bleeding because, you know, I'm old and my skin's like, you know, paper thin now. And so I'll be bleeding and they'll go, Papa, you need a Band-Aid. And I'll go, I don't need a Band-Aid, but blood stops eventually if you just keep going. And they'll go, No. You, you got to have a Band-Aid. And for the first time in my life, in my 60s, I'm wearing Band-Aids these days. <laughs> because apparently when you cut yourself, you should have a Band-Aid. And if you tear ligaments in your knee, you should have surgery. The question is, what do you need when you're dead? Well, you need a miracle. I mean, that's what you need. You need a miracle when you're dead. Now, if you don't know me, my name is Ed, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm really glad you are here, whether you're the first time or you've been here a bunch. We're honored that you came from whatever background you came from. We're studying these days a letter written by a guy named Paul to a group of people he really loved. I mean, he spent more time with these people than we know of any other group of people he stayed with. He just loved this church, and he's writing a letter to them there in the city of Ephesus. In our Bibles, it's called the Book of Ephesus, but it's really just a little letter he writes to them. And you just heard Kelly read a major part of it. And I hope you noticed, maybe you didn't, that Paul gives this shocking diagnosis for the problems that we face. And I mean we, I mean you and me and us and our world. Now, if you're a Christian, what he read to you is a very familiar passage. You probably heard it taught a whole bunch of times. And you're the people I've been praying for this morning. You've got to let all of that go. All the stuff you think you already know about this, you need, you need to drop it for a minute. And I'm hoping that you're willing to go with me on a little bit of a journey over the next, you know, not too long, 20 minutes, 25 minutes or so, and allow the words that Paul writes to give us a perspective on something that you have conversations about all the time. And the conversation is about what, what is wrong with our world and what's wrong What's wrong with us in, in our relationship? Why is it, what's, what's wrong with us? And he talks about it. If you, might have, if you were listening, you might have caught this. I'm going to point it out to you. Paul's diagnosis for the problem in our world and in you is way worse than you probably think. Verse 1, he just pulls the lens back and he says, 
you were dead. Now, remember this letter is addressed to people he knows, so he knows they're not physically dead. He knows that. But you'll also notice that he makes it personal. And every time you read one of these letters, you need to make sure that you understand he's not writing to a person. We tend to read them as Christians, and we think when he says you, he means me. He doesn't mean me. He means y'all, all y'all. It's being read in the church. And so he's talking to us, all of us. We, we were dead. And I don't do this a lot, but the Greek word that he uses there is the word nekros which is where we get our word corpse. He's talking about a corpse. In the two centuries ago, in the 19th century, probably the greatest English-speaking uh, preacher of their generation, a guy named Charles Spurgeon, uh, he has a whole book on this. It, it's one large sermon that he wrote. It had to take him more than an hour and a half probably to preach it. But in this thing, he goes into more than half of that message talking to his audience about the horrors of what happened in your body the moment you begin to die. The moment that death begins to take place. Now, I am not going to do that because, one, you won't stay here an hour and a half. <laughs> and, two, I just know you're not that interested in all of that. But I do want you to keep in mind that that's his first diagnosis of your problem. And our problem, all, all us, that's our problem. You're dead. When he describes the spiritual nature, what's going on inside of us, it causes the problems on the outside, he says, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. And trespasses is something you get, let me just say, all it means is you went places you shouldn't go. That there was a place that God had for human beings to go when he thought up human beings, and all y'all, me too, we went there where he told us not to go. Now, some of us have literally been places lots of people told us not to go. But all y'all been places, and some of you right now are here in your mind places you know you weren't meant to be. Uh, Paul just says to these friends of his, we're dead in the places God did not intend us to go. We're dead in those places. And then he said, in the ways in which you walked, following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom you once lived in the passions of our flesh. Now that's a mouthful, but all he's doing is describing pretty much the history of humanity, and let's don't get too far back. He's talking about like yesterday. This is what... I mean, it's just fascinating that this is, this is what's happening among us. You know, you see it when, when something happens that people can't explain in our world because we're so sophisticated in the 21st century and you can't explain why things are, you know, like when you wake up on a morning and everything's going fine and then all of a sudden something comes on your phone and you find out that a bunch of teachers and little kids got killed in a school. And before everybody can rationalize how it ain't their problem and how we don't need to change nothing and we can't figure out why this keeps happening, everybody's first question is, why? I mean, why does that happen? I mean, when you, 
When you hear about a guy involving in invading a country because he thinks he needs the ground and then he bombs hospitals to just blow it in and you look, watch people who thought they were getting help get blown up and you look at Putin and you think, why? Well, he ain't unusual. We, we've been doing that. I mean, we've been doing it. You watch a guy who swore to serve and protect, put his knee on the neck of a guy for nine minutes until he can't breathe. And before you start saying, well, there are all kinds of issues going on there, everybody in the moment goes, why? Why does that happen, and why does it continue to happen? Why were those not the first times we saw those kind of things? And some people immediately go, well, it's just a broken system. We have a broken system. And that's right. And you don't take very long to look at some systems in our world and go, man, we got some broken systems in our world. But that can't be the end of the answer. The answer has to be, why? Why do we, smart people, create broken systems? Why? And some people say, well, it's not systems. I mean, you can't look at that. I mean, you look at evil like that and you just have to go, people have mental issues and we need to do better with mental health. I am not denying we need to do mental health. But we say that about situations that when you finally find out, you go, that person ain't mentally deranged. I mean, we say that in situations to let our conscience off when there is little to no evidence that there is a mental problem there. And even if we do need to do better, why, why, don't, why don't we do it? And then a whole bunch of people that are, appear to be my friends, they say, we got to stop blaming the system and we got to stop blaming personal choices. I mean, per, the What's happening mentally? We got to stop blaming their parents. They don't have anything to do with it. That person made a bad, bad choice. It's just people doing dumb things. That's true too. Why? Why do we keep doing it? And what Paul does in this section is what few people apparently have been willing to do and a lot of us in here don't want to give real adult thought to is that Paul doesn't choose between is it a personal choice or a system problem or a societal issue or do you need some help from other people? Paul and the other writers of the scripture, they are way more sophisticated than we are in our generation. Paul looks at the evil in the world and he says, you were dead in the way you walked. All of y'all gone places you shouldn't have gone. And then he says, you walked following the course of the world so there's not only you there's a societal problem there's a component that the whole world has gone this way and every parent in here knows that that's why you say to your to your kids those friends aren't good for you to hang out with because they're a bad culture every parent who has a teenager they know if I could just pick their friends I'd solve lots of their problems because I'd put them in a better culture we all admit society has problems. I just want to pick the one I want to put them in. And Paul pulls back from that and says, that's true. But there's system problems. You walked according to the course of the world, so there's a societal component to our sickness. There's systematic issues alive in us in this room. And there are societal factors at work in us in this room for good or bad 
No person stands on their own. We affect and impact each other. Thomas Jefferson, one of the founders of our particular culture and our country, at the moment that he's writing, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. He's deciding not everybody back on his plantation is equal. And wrote it into law. While he writes one, why? He later, as he's getting more reflective near the end of his life in a personal journey, he writes, I tremble for my country when I reflect on the fact that God is just. And you know what he's saying? He's saying, what we're doing is wrong and everybody knows it. And he dies and does nothing about it. There's a societal system that has to be named, and Paul does. And then he goes to a whole other level. He says, we followed the prince of the power of the air. Now, this is the part I've been praying heavy duty for a whole bunch of you really smart people in the world who don't want to talk about this part. That there might actually be an evil you can't see at work all around you. And it affects you personally, it affects our culture. What's fascinating, though, is when you read or listen to people who have spent time in places where the things you and I make excuses about four days later, when they are in those places where they see horrible evil take place, they name it. Read some history of the men who liberated the death camps of Nazi Germany. And nobody comes out of there and says, you know, Hitler and Himmler, their mom must have not treated them right. They said, there was a power when we walked in there, there was a sense of a presence that's hard to name. And I mean, people who don't even believe in spiritual things, would talk, there's, a, there's a force of evil at work. Now again, I know a lot of you are too smart to believe that there's actually a force of evil at work, which is why you're thinking that right now. John Perkins, who's one of my personal heroes, he's from Mississippi, but a lot older than me and a lot braver than me. He's a preacher in Mississippi who's in his 90s and still preaching. He worked for civil rights his whole life long, right in the belly of the beast. And he's talking about when they were early in the movement in the 60s, He's in Jackson, Mississippi, and he's being beat by a collection of racist police officers. He said, I looked in, this is from his autobiography, I looked into their faces as they were beating me, and these are his words. Their faces, to me, looked like white demons. And then, because he's so committed to the way of Jesus, he said, when I saw them, I felt pity for them of what the evil had done to them. what the evil of racism had done to them. He saw beyond the societal forces, there were definitely societal forces, and there were definitely terrible personal choices that worked there. But there was a spiritual force of evil at work there. But now that I've talked about that, I don't want you to miss that Paul doesn't diminish all the bad choices we make. He goes on to say you, and this whole time, he's saying all of us, 
the big problem. We all indulge the passions of our flesh and our mind. He said, you know, we, all of us, all of us gave into things we knew we shouldn't do. All of us, if we would get beyond Christian nice and we'd be really honest, that at some point you got mad and you popped off at people you love online or in person and you said things that you can't take back or you took a swing. All of us at some moment had lust well up in us and we dwelled on it or we lingered on it, we indulged in it. All of us made a choice. And of course culture had a part to play. And of course there was evil at work to do it. But none of that, we also made a choice. We are very much sons of disobedience following the course of our broken world, he says. We're by nature children of wrath like all the rest of mankind. Paul goes on and he just talks about the divine standard or justice. We read it and I don't have time to go into it, but you know, justice isn't a preference we get to make. It's not a personal choice. I remind myself all the time when I get really riled up about the just injustice in our world that I feel like I should have made more difference in in my 60 years of life. And I remind myself, there is a God that is way more upset than you. When he looks what's going on in our world, he is way more upset than you. I mean, imagine if you owned a, I mean, if you were wealthy enough that you could own a whole apartment complex that you built with your own money and after it's done, you just wanted it to bless a particular neighborhood and you, you tried to be equitable in everything that happened so that people could experience justice and just not be abused and hurt and you have to leave and you turn it over to a small group of people to manage and say, hey, let this thing be fruitful and multiply. And when you come back, you find a third of the children who live in that apartment building are abused before they're 18. And that 99% of the money that you gave to run the apartment building winds up in the hand of 1% of the smallest group. I mean, if you, if you had given all of that freely of your own will and you found that that's what the managers had done with that, do you think you might be upset? So when people say to me, you know, how can God be just and be a God of love? You can't be the characteristic of love and see the injustice that goes on and not want something done about it. You have to be moved by it. I mean, how could a God look at in our culture and know that 30% of females are not going to make it past 18 without being molested or abused? How could he look at that and not say that's wrong? How, and just because you and I weren't the ones that abused does not mean we're not a part of the culture. And we're not a part of the problem. Because the death, the corpse that exists in all of us, we walked according to the ways of the world. It just impacts us all differently. My wife and I, for the whole time of the pandemic, and 
we were really proud that even though we stayed out, I mean, we worked every day here at the church. We didn't take, we, we never closed down the offices. We were really proud for two and a half years we didn't get COVID. In fact, Becky was really proud that she didn't get COVID. Other people, get, she's that way, y'all. Uh, uh, but then I got it. This summer, I got COVID, and when it got me, oh, baby, did it hit me. I mean, it hit me hard. I, I started feeling a little bad, and before I knew it, I couldn't swallow water. My, my throat got so sore, I couldn't, I couldn't hardly breathe. I couldn't eat. I had a fever that took me from I'm sweating through my clothing till I'm shivering under covers to try to stay warm. At one point, Becky had gone out for a few hours because she didn't have uh, the, uh, the, you know, COVID yet, and she had gone away, and I got coughing so bad and had such little air, I literally thought, I thought I was going to die, and that's where she was going to find me, on the floor, dead from COVID. I mean, it hit me terrible. Well, Becky also got COVID, and uh, she didn't have any symptoms. Good for her. <laughs> what, a, what a good thing. In fact, she had... She would not have known she had COVID, except she was so committed that our children's ministry would be COVID-free, she committed that she would take the test, and she had it. And one of us was unhappy about that, really, really unhappy that the other person had given it to them. We had the exact same disease, the exact same disease. We both were a part of transmitting that disease. We both were a part of the problem in our country. We just had different symptoms. I didn't choose mine, she didn't choose hers. It just, it just hit us different. There are people in this room that other people look down on for choices they made. How dare you? We are the same. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. And of course... Sin has to be named and owned. It has to be brought before our Heavenly Father. And so we're going to take a moment and we're going to do that before we move on to repent. And repentance, that's what repentance means. It means seeing it, what we've done individually, what we do collectively, what our culture has that people in our culture don't want to own. But we're the church. We can do this. And we own it. And we name it. And we repent of both personal individual sins and our culture and our society so we can turn away. So I've asked Steve to come and lead us during that time. Repentance is a critical part of life with God and our life with other people. Repentance is this process of confessing our sins and our failures, not, not only for the hurtful words and the actions that we've done, but also for those times when we've just chosen to do nothing instead of whatever loving thing that God was calling us to do, either for Him or for others. And, and unfortunately, many of us, we just don't have the language to do this. And so we live in this culture that just wants to highlight our successes and just minimize our failures. And so we, we rarely take the time to confess our sins and failures to anyone, including God. And, but sin, as Ed said, sin must be named 
in order us, for us to turn from it. And so this morning, we're going to use the language used by believers around the world to help us confess our sins. Now, this may feel uncomfortable, and maybe you're not sure that you want to participate, especially if you don't believe all that we do. So don't feel like you need to fake anything uh, with us this morning. Uh, and if you f um, feel uncomfortable and don't want to do it, that's okay. But if you feel comfortable doing so, would you just stand with me right now? There's going to be some words that come up uh, on the screen. And if you would, read the words in bold aloud with me. Let us confess our sins against God and our neighbor. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. And would you just take a moment to privately confess to God any sin that has brought to your mind as we read those words? Maybe it was a moment of failure, or maybe it's something that's repeated or something that's habitual. Whatever it is, let's just take a moment to confess our sins to God. And now, take a moment to name the sins, the injustices, and the evils in our culture. The ways in which those of us in our cities, in our country, in our world, allow the power of sin to inflict harm on people who are made in God's image. Would you take a moment to name those sins before God and confess the ways in which you have either contributed to this sin or you've neglected uh, to do something about it that is in your power to do so. Let's take a few moments now and reflect. And now let's ask for God's mercy and forgiveness and ask Him to heal us and to heal our world. Let's read the closing words of this prayer together. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may this be true of us. Heal our hearts and heal our land. And may we be your people who are able to push back the darkness in our world because you've already done so in our lives. We thank you for your mercy and love shown through Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Sin doesn't always look the same, and neither does death. When you think about the people Jesus raised from the dead, they didn't all look the same. 
There was one little girl who had just died a few moments before he arrived, and she looked like she was sleeping, or maybe her body was still warm. Jesus raised a young man to life in the middle of his own funeral. At that point, rigor mortis had probably set in. And then there was his friend Lazarus, who had been in the grave four days. And when Jesus told them to roll the stone away from the tomb, Lazarus's sister said, Lord, by now he's going to stink. The smell of death was on him. Different manifestations of death, but they were all dead. They did not need an aspirin or a Band-Aid. They needed a miracle, and so do we. So Paul writes, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. As the saying goes, Jesus did not come to make bad people good, but dead people alive. Like the lepers who Jesus touches when no one else will, Jesus does not stand back from our problem. He sees our sin and sees our pain. He sees the injustices we have created or experienced, and he says, I will enter that with you. Whether you are the abuser or the abused, I will move towards you. And not because he saw something good in us, but because of the good in him, because of his great love. So you may look at your life and think, I'm not worthy of his redemption. Well, good news. His redemption is not rooted in our worthiness, but in his. In Jesus, God moves towards the broken and dead things and says, I'm bringing you back to life. I'm not just going to raise you with Christ. I'm going to seat you with Christ. I'm going to put you in heavenly places with Christ. I'm going to associate you with him so that in the coming ages, I can display the immeasurable riches of my grace and kindness towards you in Christ Jesus. I'm going to take objects of my wrath and make them emblems of my mercy. That's how radical the grace of God is. It bridges the gap between heaven and earth. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and it is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not through works, so that no one can boast. When I fully get the grace of God, it generates humility in me. I don't deserve to be forgiven. I don't deserve anything, but he loves me. It's transformational because I realize I'm his workmanship created in Christ Jesus, now ready to do good work that God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He changes me on the inside and that changes the way I live on the outside. I no longer live according to the course of this world, but I can walk in line with his work. And this isn't because of anything I've done. It's all because of the great and powerful love of Jesus. So often at this place when somebody teaches Ephesians chapter 2, and I've certainly done this, this is where the message ends. Grace. I was lost. Jesus found me. I'm saved. I'm alive. Let's sing Amazing Grace and go home. But it's like we read Ephesians 2 and we act like there's this huge break between Ephesians 2.10 where he says we've been saved to do good works and he's going to show an amazing uh, a richness of his grace through us and we act like verse 11 doesn't matter at all. And I know if you have a copy of the Bible with you there's a heading change. 
that uh, there's this big bold letters that are between verses 10 and 11. But I need to remind you, Paul didn't write the heading. The heading was not in there. There is no break there for Paul. In fact, the very next word that they're going to put on the screen here, what's the first word there? Therefore. Now, you don't have to be very smart to know that when you read therefore at the beginning of the sentence, it means everything that came before this was getting you ready to hear this. Everything about you being saved by grace, everything about you being dead, but God giving a miracle and you being alive, all of it to set this up. All of it comes in light of this. So either I could be or end early today and just ignore that, and we're going to talk about this some uh, next week, and think that all of you are going to remember everything I said in the first 10 verses uh, all, a whole week, which you aren't, uh, or I could begin what we need to hear today. So that's what I'm going to do. When you see, therefore, what you need to understand is, therefore, remember what he's trying to tell us, and he says, that you were formerly, that, that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth, called uns, the uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Now, I'll just quickly say, I don't have time for much more than this. If you don't know what circumcision means, that would be a great topic at lunch, so you all enjoy that and uh, talk to me about that later. Uh, you're welcome. Uh, uh, Paul, Paul is saying, because of the good news that's been given to you, that you were once dead and now that you've been made alive, uh, because of that, it has some unbelievable implications that are going to work out in this ethnic divide that's divided their world. Now, I could just talk about their world and act like our world's not divided, but then y'all would think I was stupid and think that ethnic divides only took place in the first century, and they don't still exist. So instead, we're all going to get our big boy pants on, and we're going to act like we know this still happens. That this whole separation that we experience in numerous ways, he's going to talk about it ethnically, but boy, we have championed division over every cause, haven't we? It's all from the evil one. That's what he wants you to know. Every time you get to that place that you separate between people based on things, all of that comes from the evil one. The word Gentiles, it's the Greek word ethnos. It's where we get our word ethnicity. So he's clearly talking about the ethnic divide that's taking place in their place. And I can't go into all of this today, but I just want to say to those of you who, when I've talked about the ethnic divide before that think I have some kind of political agenda, I only am talking about what the Scripture talks about. This may be a political issue for some people. For me, it's the gospel issue. The church is the place this gets solved. And that's why we talk about it. Because the cross has a vertical beam that the first ten verses talk about the way God made me who I was dead, he makes me alive. And by grace, I can stand before God. I'm alive in him, and I've been made now to do good works. And it has a horizontal beam where the good works take place. He has a horizontal beam where he makes me right with him, but the other part is just as important. And if you only focus on the grace that happens and you don't get that the whole work of the richness that's going to be displayed in us, again, not you, but in us, 
is that the divides in the world are supposed to be solved in the church. We are to be the kingdom of God where every division gets wiped out. Imagine, in their day, there was one ethnicity who thought they had a special place with God, so they took all other ethnicities, whether whatever country they were from, and they gave them one big name. They just called them Gentiles. It didn't matter where you were from. didn't matter what you looked like. They just lumped you all together, and eventually they called you the uncircumcised. And the reason they were doing that is they were reminding you, in God's eyes, you're a little less than us. You're just a little bit lower than us. They took a symbol, circumcision, that had been given to them by God to remind them, I chose you. You didn't do nothing. In fact, when he chooses them, he says to them, I didn't choose you because you're special. By the way, God, Israel is not God's favorite nation. God don't have a favorite nation. God chose them as a vessel to deliver the Messiah to the world. Deal done. They took that symbol that they had been chosen, and instead they took it as a point of pride. And they created an ethnic slur out of the opposite. You uncircumcised. So if you want to bring it into our day and you want to understand how this works out, Paul's not only talking about ethnic separation, he's talking about some deep-seated ethnic pain for some people. So you put whatever racial slur in there that you've either felt the sting of or you have used to indicate to somebody they are less than you, lower than you, not as good as you. And in the context of the church, because of the grace of God, we can, we can bring this in the open. He says, now in Christ, you who were once far away, again in this he's talking about from each other, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Don't miss this. He himself is our peace. He has made both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility between us. And so in that church, Paul looks at the Jews, who their heritage was, they had been held as slaves by the Egyptians and slaves by the Babylonians, and they had been pressed by Rome. He looks at them, and then he looks at the Romans who had them under their thumb and did not care what they did to this little ethnic minority of Jews. And he says the gospel of Christ makes all of that null and void. You are one in the kingdom of God. The grace of Jesus is just that radical, people. If you can get beyond that, it, it takes you to heaven when you die. It has implications for what we should be doing today. Because the grace of God is not just for me. It's for us. It's for all of us. It belongs to all of us. In our broken relationships, in our broken world, of the solution because we all need each other. The ground beneath the cross has been leveled by the grace of God. And the only people worthy to come to the cross are the people who come to the cross on their knees and say, I ain't worthy to be here. So how could I possibly feel superior to anybody else? Because the only admission that got me to Jesus was the admission that I did not feel worthy to be with Jesus. And so we can't walk around pointing fingers and acting like we don't have a problem. We, the church, because of grace, can admit 
that the division does not just exist out there, it exists in us. That we've been powered by the culture. That we have been shaped by what's going on. And it's been at work for thousands of years. It's time we brought it into the open and we don't act like it's somebody else's fault and say, well, I didn't have any part in that. Your part if you don't fix it. If you don't fix it. If you don't fix it. You have to own your continuing it. We own the responsibility. And because we've been healed by the great physician, we know that he has the power to raise dead people to life and he can change us and our culture. I believe that. The grace of God can change us. And through the church, it can change any world. Because we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God, being rich in his mercy, has made us alive in him. We've been saved by his grace. And that's not of himself, but we've been prepared to do good works, which he already prepared in us, to show his richness to the world when we come together as the kingdom of God in one place at the foot of the cross. So I urge you, What's your step out of this? You begin to step across the divide. By the blood of the power of Jesus, you begin to heal every divide. You stop turning your head to it, and you begin to work in the power of Jesus to make a difference. And we only do that because of His grace. And so now we come to the time when we remember the grace that was given for us. Surely today you won't walk away thinking, for you only. It was given for us. To undo the separation between God and man and between us and each other. So I asked Steve to come and lead us in that time of communion today.